Councilman Hollander, if you want to give a warning, we'll, we're ready when you are. Um, Chair Hollander, if you would like, uh, we can start in about a minute. Ah, that would be good. Okay, Metro TV, one minute, please. Sir, we're ready whenever you are, and there is a form. Good afternoon. This is the regular meeting of the Louisville Metro Council Budget Committee. Today is Thursday, December 8th. It is 5.18 p.m. This meeting is being held pursuant to 60, uh, KRS 61-826 and Council Rule uh, 5A. Uh, I'm the committee chair, Bill Hollander. I'm going to try to read uh, the names of everybody uh, who is here, but if I miss anybody, please just uh, uh, just jump in and say you are also here. I'm doing this uh, meeting very reluctantly remotely because I'm uh, not feeling so well, but, uh, but I'm happy to be here. So the members that I see on screen, uh, Councilman, uh, Council Members Triplett, Fowler, and then... Um, I don't know who is in chambers. We have committee member. Uh, uh, Madam Clerk, if you read the people, read the names of the people in chambers, maybe that might help. Of course, we have committee member McCraney, committee member Piagentini, committee member Arthur, and committee member or vice chair Kramer. Okay, uh, I do know that we have an excused absence for Councilwoman Armstrong. I think uh, Councilman um, Winkler will be joining us in just a, just a minute. And committee uh, member Engel just today. joined us as well. Thank you very much. If you'll continue to add people in as they join in, I, uh, we'd appreciate that. We have three items today, uh, two resolutions. The first, the uh, Jefferson County Sheriff's budget, uh, then the resolution approving the Jefferson County Clerk's budget, uh, and, and finally, one ordinance, and it relates to some changes in some ARP funding. I do want to uh, uh, say at the outset here, and it seems like an appropriate thing to say at, at our uh, last uh, budget meeting, in my last budget meeting 
uh, ever, uh, since we've spent so much time talking about CERS. Uh, we did get uh, word uh, this week from the CERS board, and it relates to what we're going to be talking about in terms of the clerk's office, and particularly the sheriff's uh, budget, that the CERS contribution rate for FY24 is going down in both cases. Uh, down almost 6% in CERS, down 3.45% uh, in, uh, I mean, for, for hazardous, down 3.45% for non-hazardous. Uh, and again, that we'll get into how that relates to the sheriff's budget and the uh, clerk's budget, but it's uh, clearly very good news. The first item is a, and I have put, by the way, uh, attached to the agenda for the clerk's item just this afternoon, I've attached something from KLC, uh, which shows uh, how that rate is going down and why it's going down. Um, the first item is uh, R18522, a resolution approving the Jefferson County Sheriff's uh, 2023 budget. Is there a motion to approve? Motion, Arthur. Motion to move, Triplett. Second, Arthur. Uh, properly moved by Councilman Triplett, seconded by Councilman Arthur. The resolution is before us. Uh, is Sheriff Aubrey in the chambers? He is. Or someone from the sheriff's office? All right, Sheriff Aubrey, the floor is yours. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Vice Chairman, and those that are members of this particular committee. Uh, put my readers on. Uh, some of you recall this uh, opportunity to become before you and ask you to review and approve our budget uh, is the 19th time I've been here. Uh, but prior to 2003, 20, yeah, three, we went to fiscal court. But after merger, uh, then we were invited to come before you guys. Overall, 2022 has been a very positive year with the exception of our personnel vacancies. Currently, we have 62 deputy vacancies, but are in the process of hiring 20 certified court security officers, and they will be doing uh, their first year of employment. It's going to start January and February. We also have four deputy recruits in basic training at Richmond who are scheduled to graduate in January. These additions will reduce some of the pressures we currently are experiencing with scheduling. During, the, during this year, we were able to increase salary, salaries for all our employees, and we're still, depending on which uh, seniority year you look at, we're six, eight, even more than that, thousands uh, annually below Metro Police, and then there's some smaller departments that are, that are paying even more than uh, Metro. In our propo proposed budget, we anticipate a 10% increase for all our employees. A review of the 2023 actual increases in expenses will determine the amounts and when. Uh, the uh, Sheriff's Office employees participate in what the chairman just mentioned, county employees retirement system, only full-time positions uh, are in that retirement system. Neither our part-time nor seasonal workers participate in the uh, retirement system. Uh, 
appreciate uh, coming up with the ladies, latest fish figures for 2024 on CERS hazardous and non-hazardous. We're always trying to outguess what they're going to do, and normally uh, it's around July uh, of the year that we hear what those uh, rates are going to be. I think something that I hope everybody appreciates, we've had major upgrades this year, and a lot of them was to keep us compatible with Metro, safe in the communication systems. Uh, we purchased 360 port portable radios and some console upgrades in our communication center. These additions, uh, like I mentioned, that it keeps us compatible with Metro safe, and the cost was just shy of $2 million. We replaced all our outdated tasers with new versions, and this was a million four. We are committed to keeping our fleet up to a safe and acceptable standard. We have a vehicle replacement program based on the vehicle's primary assignment, safety, and roadworthiness. This year, we're spending about 840,000 for 15 new cars, one canine car, uh, in a prisoner van. I've mentioned in the last few years how much emphasis we try to put on training in specific areas. This year we purchased 12 laptop computers for online training. And I'm currently, in, I'm really in Owensboro doing my 40 hours this week, but uh, they uh, made a presentation yesterday that in 20, oh, 2024, 10% of in-service that DOCJT puts out will be online. And the next year, 30% will be online. And to stay certified, you got to have 40 hours each year in service. We're uh, continuing to upgrade our software to Microsoft current products. We have purchased 50 mobile digital terminals to replace our other models that need replacing. We're looking to add printers and scanners to the vehicles used by the process unit. In the area of revenue and employee benefits, uh, our tax revenue continues to show an increase uh, as they have over the last four years due to our property assessment values, uh, increased home sales, and various taxing jurisdictions raising their rates. Since fees and commission revenue that the sheriff office receives are subject to a 75-25 split with Metro government, we both are, uh, both of us are gaining. Uh, we continue to put emphasis on our community relation and outreach and I think in my presentation last year, I mentioned that we were in the process of bringing Bishop David Lyons uh, in as part of our Sheriff's Office family as chaplain slash community outreach liaison. Uh, this job description includes support to our deputies, support staff and their families in areas such as stress management, but also to assist uh, with victims of a crime, disasters, accidents, 
and domestic violence. He serves as a liaison with other clergy and between our office and the community. This includes attending community events as our agency representative. He is challenged to enhance and build upon the community relationship with local faith leaders and houses of faith that we experience now. The, one of his critical roles is he puts a strong effort in the area of recruiting and retention of minorities with our agency. I mentioned uh, earlier about how much uh, emphasis we put on uh, training and support in the areas of training, both for deputies, commanding officers, and our civilian. Our training includes uh, firearms, in-service, orientation for new personnel. There is a strong, repetitive emphasis on de-escalation, use of force, re weapon retention, first aid, including stop the bleeding, and the duty to intervene. Those two trigger words, intervene and de-escalation, it's national. And we've had a lot of uh, uh, emphasis put on that in the current 40 hours that were taken in Owensboro. Uh, one of our um, best kept programs is our reserve deputies. Uh, we currently have 70. Uh, they get, uh, under the statute, you can hire a special deputy. He doesn't have to have any training. Our special deputies have to have 240 hours training, which they have to do at night and on the weekends. And then our training staff says, Sheriff, we think they're ready. Uh, and to really make sure they know what they're doing, the schedule is such that on Derby Eve and Derby Day, they're assigned to the track with other full-time deputies. And that's about a 12 to 14 hour shift both days. But uh, then they really look in the mirror and decide this is what I wanna do. Uh, we did uh, 74 charitable events. I got all kinds of stats, but in the interest of time, 74 charitable events, 27 community sponsored events, metro events where we assisted, and I mentioned Derby and Oaks, we do our part on Thunder, Boat Race, Bed Race, Pegasus Parade, Mini Marathon, Balloon Racing Globe, Light Up Louisville, the Riverview Festival, the MLK Peace Walk. And those hours that were uh, put into those events totaled $2,487. And I think the critical thing is it didn't cost us $1. We did, they get no salary by statute they cannot be paid. We've had uh, five details requested from other agencies. As you probably know, we've got uh, river patrols. They did 29 events on the river, usually with Metro River Patrol and the Coast Guard for 762 hours. Our bike patrol did 536 hours and we assisted Metro, they assisted Metro on nine details. Metro has a bike patrol, and it really helps when you can uh, pair them up together. Uh, the motorcycle escorts did 1,781 hours. The other details that 
probably goes a little bit unnoticed, but them them reserve deputies spent twenty nine over twenty nine hundred hours uh, in the criminal unit, and we literally have two that almost come in every workday, and uh, it, it, with our shortage. You can imagine how critical that is to help us get our mission done. The Kentucky State Fair, we had 664 hours, and during the election, we provide security for the warehouse. We provide uh, a deputy who rides with, they call them sheriffs, a Republican and a, Dep and a Republican and a Democrat. If there's a complaint at a polling place, our deputy is transporting them. His one role is to maintain the peace. They solve whatever the issues are or whatever the problems are. Uh, in closing, I, would, I personally thank you for your time and support of the Sheriff's Office. We try very hard to be good partners with Metro government, its officials, and agencies of special metro police. I respectfully ask you to approve our proposed 2023 budget as submitted. Stay safe and stay healthy. Uh, thank you, Sheriff. Um, and clerks, uh, you can help me if, if uh, anyone joins the queue here. Um, I, I did want to note that the documents you've presented indicates that your preliminary assessment of your four-year surplus to return uh, to Metro is $4.4 million. Uh, we, we, I can assure you we can put that to very good use. Uh, and uh, I appreciate your, um, your managing your office uh, in a way that can do that. Thank you. Uh, so just to elaborate a little bit on what I said, and of course this will affect your budget, does not mean we need to change your budget or hold this up at all. Uh, and the, and the documents are attached now to the agenda. So uh, hazardous uh, rate right now is 49.59. Uh, as of July 1st, 2023, it will go down to 43.69 instead of going up as you had estimated. And non-hazardous is at 26.79 now. Uh, it will go down to 23.34, uh, which is also uh, uh, considerably less than what you had estimated. Of course, you've got it interesting situation the rates are are based on a fiscal year and you're on a calendar year so your budget uh over overlaps the two uh the two cers uh payment rates but that's all good news and of course will be great news for metro as well next year when we're uh, someone is putting together the budget um are there, is anyone in the queue to uh, uh to um, address this matter no Mr. sorry no no one's in the queue all right uh, if not, thank you very much for being here, uh, Sheriff. This is a resolution that we can uh, approve on a voice vote. All in favor, say aye. 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 Any opposed? Thank you. Thank you very much, Sheriff, for being here, and congratulations. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, the committee and Vice Chairman. The, uh, the next item is R18622, a resolution approving the Jefferson County Clerk's 2023 budget. Is there a motion to approve? Motion Winkler. Second, Arnold. Uh, properly moved by Councilman Winkler, seconded by Councilman Arthur. The uh, resolution is before us. I did want to note that uh, 
Uh, Councilwoman George, I think, has joined us since we last uh, recognized people here, and Councilman uh, Winkler. The clerk, uh, uh, Bobby Holsclaw, is with us, and uh, uh, clerk, the, the floor is yours. Uh, I come before the Metro Council today to present our request for approval of the 2023 fee budget. Our budget request is for $28,722,100, of which $21,360,900 is for ongoing payroll and operating expenses. $289,100 is for new capital initiatives and $7,072,100 is to cover the election center expenses. Our expected surplus at the end of 2022 is approximately $6.9 million for the four-year term. Our estimated revenue for 2022 is $25,700,000, of which $5.9 million is to cover the reimbursable election center expenses. Approximately 71.5% of the overall expenses are for personnel costs to maintain 322 employees. 27.5% is for operating expenses and the remaining 1% is for capital for emergency replacements. Um, as you know, our duties and fees are set per KRS. The clerk's office has a wide variety of duties. We issue registration and plates, replace decals, license and transfer used vehicles for dealers, issue dealer tags, collect ad valorem taxes, collect usage taxes, file liens on title collateral, issue disabled person parking permits, record all legal documents and file for public record, issue marriage licenses, notaries and professional licenses. We collect delinquent taxes and coordinate property assessment appeals. We also are responsible for certifying and generating real and personal property tax bills each year. Our office also oversees voter registration and the elections for Jefferson County. We request that you approve the budget as submitted. Thank you, Madam. Thank you very much, Madam Clerk. And let me also comment since I did in connection with the uh, sheriff's budget, you have also indicated that your estimated surplus for your surplus is $6.9 million, uh, which would be returned to, to Metro at uh, sometime during the next uh, year. And that's very much appreciated too. We can put that to good work as well. Um, are there questions for the clerk? Uh, committee member Ingalls in the queue. Councilman Ingalls, the floor is yours. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. You know, I, I've been listening to this, this county clerk's budget uh, address, if you will, or presentation for, for quite some time, and really haven't ever made, made a comment, but, but I have to make a comment uh, tonight. Bobby, uh, $6.8 million surplus, uh, you know, and it, it's one year after another that we get presented with surpluses from this, from this department and this, this, uh, this clerk. I want to applaud you for, for that, for many years of service 
you know, you went over all the things that you did, and not long ago we sort of saw something on TV that, you know, had all those things that you do. And one thing that you mentioned that, or, or, or that what I saw on TV, what you don't do, is you don't get political. And it's, it's, it's evident uh, that you don't, and you are respected throughout this community, <coughs> otherwise you wouldn't be in the position that you're in. Uh, you have many, many people of different registrations that work for you and make your office click. And I will tell you, raising four kids and not looking forward to April every year when I have to go into the clerk's office and renew and pay some heavy taxes, I will say that the efficiencies, the efficiency of the clerk's office over the last several years makes that much less painful, Mr. Chairman. And so I just wanted to take the opportunity uh, tonight to say thank you to our county clerk for our, her outstanding many years of service to Metro Louisville. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Councilman Engel, I just want to tell you from my heart, I appreciate those kind words. Thank you so very much. You're welcome. Committee member uh, Piagentini is next in the queue. Floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, ditto to everything Councilman Engel said. Uh, I, would, I would also highlight um, that the Secretary of State, uh, Michael Adams, has uh, been on the record in talking about the, uh, the difficulties brought on by, I'll just say, outside sources uh, to the county clerk's office through this last election cycle. And I just wanted to take a moment to highlight the incredible work that all our, our county clerks, certainly ours uh, in, in your office, uh, uh, Bobby, and all the employees that work there. Uh, I know that you and, and similar clerks across the state were bombarded with, in many cases, uh, frivolous uh, Freedom of Information Act requests. And look, this is coming from a guy that is not happy with the, how we're handling that as Metro, and, and I am all about, you wanna take a look at my email, feel free to look at it anytime you feel like it, type transparency. And at the same time, um, there's a difference between that and specifically targeting uh, hardworking government employees for no reason whatsoever. So I just wanted to compliment um, the work that your office did through the election cycle. I thought the returns came in promptly, which was great to see, and, um, and all the clerks across the county. So let me start with that. The, the only thing I wanted to confirm, uh, Bobby, uh, Chairman Hollander mentioned you're running a surplus. Will you be returning the surplus to Metro? I wasn't. Yes, sure. it will be returned to Metro. Okay. January when all the bills for sure are paid and uh, whatever the, rev the rest of the revenue that comes in for the remainder of the year and the bills. We're trying to close those books out now. Well, thank you very much for that. And uh, I, I, I erred in not asking the sheriff the same question specifically. It was pointed out to him the surplus that he has, uh, but I think we need to get clarification if it's his intent to return it back to Metro uh, because this is a, uh, you know, I could wax poetic about our deferred maintenance needs um, potential recessionary pressures and other things. 
and I, I think we should probably reach out since we did it during didn't do it during the committee hearing uh, reach out to the sheriff's office just to confirm but I appreciate that uh, madam clerk really appreciate your stewardship of the office and your willingness to return that surplus to uh, Metro thank you very much thank you so much and for from all of the clerks and the deputy clerks we thank you for your kind comments and Councilman Fiorentini, uh, I did I did reference the fact that he would be returning that to to Metro and thanked him for that. That's actually in his document. I think it's statutory, and I think he has to return that at the end of the four year if there's a surplus. So I, I you know, it, it, it's I certainly appreciate it. I certainly, as I said, I certainly appreciate the uh, uh, the surplus return from the clerk too. And Councilman Engel is right. We've seen this year after year, and uh, it's very much appreciated. The prudent fiscal management. Uh, any, anyone else in the queue? Councilman Arthur? Thank you, Chairman. I'll be quick. And I just wanted to personally thank um, our Jefferson County Clerk for assisting corrections. We passed a resolution calling on corrections to make sure people had access to their voting rights. And you jumped in and your office was so helpful in that effort, helping about 117 people uh, get access to the ballot. And we thank you for that. And we thank you for being committed to that going forward. And we appreciate your work. Well, thank you very much. You know, it's, it's our desire to make sure that everyone that's entitled to vote gets to vote and that every vote does count. Thank you very much, Councilwoman McCraney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Your Honorable Host Claw, I could not let this day go by without just saying hello and happy holidays to you and your family. And thank you for running an efficient office and all that you do for our county. Best wishes. Thank you. I cannot thank you enough for recognizing it. I don't see anyone else in the queue. Uh, this is a resolution that we can approve on a voice vote. All in favor say aye. 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 Any, any opposed? The resolution is approved, and this will be on the consent calendar at our meeting uh, next week. Uh, Clerk Holskoff, thank you very much for all you do and, and uh, uh, for being here tonight, and congratulations. The final item is uh, Ordinance 365-22, an ordinance amending Ordinance Number 168, Series 2021, relating to the second round of the American Rescue Plan, ARP Local Fiscal Recovery, by transferring a portion of the funds relating to compliance and reporting, LAT 0059, to premium pay, LAT 0056, to be administered by the Office of Management and Budget. Is there a motion to Motion, approve? Winkler. Second. Properly moved by Councilman Winkler, seconded by Councilman Piagentini. We have a uh, amendment by substitution uh, in, on the system, which amends both the title for this uh, and also uh, changes uh, uh, the, the Schedule A. So what this does is to, um, to uh, change from the Public Health Department uh, a $1,200,000 appropriation to uh, a $900,000 appropriation, and then uh, redirect that $300,000 of ARP funding uh, to uh, Winter 22 Crisis Mitigation Program, providing services to homeless individuals and families during the winter of 2022-2023 period. Um, yeah, is, there a, is there a motion to, uh, 
to put this amended um, ordinance before. Motion. Second. second. Properly uh, moved and seconded. Uh, all in favor of that, to get this in front of us, say aye. 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 Any opposed? So the amended ordinance is now in front of us. It's got a new title, uh, some new language, and a new Schedule A. Uh, Monica Harmon, are you in the uh, audience to speak to us tonight about this change? She is. She's, Good evening. The floor is yours. Thank you. Monica Harmon, Office of Management and Budget. Uh, the ordinance as amended by substitution is the first item that we're addressing is uh, transferring funds from compliance and reporting to meet the budget deficit that was created by the premium pay that exceeded the original appropriation. Um, I, I do want to make a recommendation that, that this is pulling away funds that we still are forecasting we're going to need in terms of compliance and reporting, but we needed to get the Treasury report that we report show that we had funds appropriated for the expenditures that were made. And so we're making this adjustment. There is an anticipation, um, and I speak to that in section two, um, that we would have some funds remaining in the uh, LAT uh, 59, which is the premium pay, excuse me, 57 which is the premium pay for component units. We are resolving and, and settling up with the uh, firefighter, uh, suburban firefighter districts to get their premium pay distributed. Um, and depending on how that nets out with this, the related small cities and what their contribution is, is that there is expected to be some funds. With this ordinance, I'm requesting that any surplus that remains from that activity would then automatically be returned to the compliance and reporting uh, uh, fund so that those we would have sufficient funds and, and and acknowledge that we may end up if we don't allocate any further we may have to eventually pay for compliance and reporting out of general funds again that's not an immediate need and this gets us trued up and balanced out um, the second item I I will t defer to uh, Dr. Buccino in terms of the item that's before it regarding homelessness. That was an amendment made um, outside of OMB. So any questions, I'll be glad to answer them. Um, I don't know if anyone is in the queue. Council, well, Councilman Fowler is in the queue. Let me make just one comment about, about compliance and reporting. Uh, this is not the only compliance and reporting uh, money that has been appropriated for ARP, just so everyone knows that. There is also another uh, $5 million that's Correct. appropriated. So this leaves $5 million plus the $3 million six that would be left for potential compliance and reporting. And I, I get it. What you're saying is you may need all of that and, and potentially more. The, the, let me just, and we've gotten a report on this, uh, council members, but the premium pay uh, overage that we're uh, compensating for tonight is, uh, is basically for Metro employees and, and the reasoning, I mean, what happened is, frankly, that we, when, when this was initially passed, I think it's fair to say that OMB underestimated the number of people which would be in the highest tiers, therefore getting the most premium pay. And, and uh, when all that netted out, it, it ended up costing us um, $6.4 6 million more than we anticipated. Is that a fair uh, general assessment of the situation? That's correct. The analysis and comparison is provided in the report that was submitted by OMB on November 1st. There was We submit ARP reporting and we provided a little bit more detail on that, but that is the just, just 
cause of the uh, 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 in that care that, that there wasn't any um, it, we just underestimated the allocation between the three tiers. Councilman Arthur, I'm looking at the queue. Were you on the queue for this? Did you already speak? Yes, sir. All right. Your, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. I just wanted to kind of tee us up before we hear from Dr. Susan Bacino and kind of level set with folks. Um, you all know we made historic investments in affordable housing last year and even some funding this year. Uh, but our 2019 housing needs assessment was very clear that this is a multi-billion dollar need. In 2019, it was 3.5 billion. Uh, Louisville Forward estimates it's over 5 billion at this point because of the cost of labor and lumber increasing. So as much money as we put into it, and we should be very proud of that, you know, we didn't even hit 3% of the overall need. Uh, we invested millions, but we desperately need billions, not only from local government, but also from state and federal government. Until we get there, we have a responsibility to make sure that people have access to shelter, and that's what some of this funding will help with. And to give some of those details, uh, shout out to Councilman uh, Chairman Hollander for allowing Dr. Pacino to come and present. Councilman Piazzantini. Um, I'll reserve until Dr. Pacino has spoken. I'll, I'll, I'll come out of the queue, wait for her to speak, and then I'll come back in. Thank you. Councilman Fowler, did you want to speak? Uh, I do. Thank you. I just have a question for Monica. Um, I, I got an email from a constituent who is a retired firefighter. And he was questioning why the retired firefighters didn't uh, weren't included on the premium pay, and I haven't answered him yet. I just got the email yesterday, uh, but you know my recollection is that he, you know, we we did this to uh, increase retention of our employees um, and and to reward them for the front you know, the frontline workers, public facing workers. So that that was never considered, was it, uh, Ms. Harmon? No, we focused on the current, you had to be employed currently to receive that. So uh, anybody who had retired prior to when the funding was provided for this, and I, it's been a while, I can't remember the time frame, but there was a specific date you had to be employed by to receive it. So anybody who retired yep. or separated was not eligible. Um, it, I, I understand there were people that left and didn't, but we just we just had to cut it off at one point. Right, Mr. Okay. Chair, it's Councilman Thank Kramer. You. I might interject. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir, Councilman Kramer. Thank you. I would point out to Councilwoman Fowler and others who may be listening in uh, the retired firefighter that you spoke of, like from one of the suburban fire departments, perhaps. Uh, they would want to understand that the process we used when we extended this to this premium pay to suburban fire, they used exactly the same process that we used for all of our metro employees. So if we've got folks in the suburban fire district who are asking questions, um, please make sure that they understand that we did not treat them in this process any differently than we did our own EMS staff, our own fire staff, our own police department, public works. Um, the process that was used was a process consistent across 
That was one of the conditions, I know, I'll, I'll defer to Councilman Hollander, but that was one of the conditions when we worked with suburban cities to make sure that people understood the same process would be used for everybody who was receiving these funds. Thank you, uh, that was correct. We were very equitable in treatment across all. Yeah, so uh, Councilman, uh, Chair Hollander, if I, if I may um, respond. So uh, he, he was talking about um, our Louisville firefighters. He's a retired Louisville firefighter, wasn't a suburban, but um, I'm glad to know that it was, you know, everybody was treated the same. So that's all, thank you. Thank you, Councilwoman McCraney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And, I, and along the lines of the inquiry from Councilwoman Fowler, the letter that I received was from someone who inquired because he was in place during the pandemic and he retired right at the end of the year. And so he was wanting to know, I worked during that time period that you are referring to for the payment, yet I'm now retired, why wouldn't I be considered? And so I would like that just to be publicly addressed. Okay, I, I don't, I need to have more specific information to, to address it, but we, we specifically looked at the time, a point in time where they were employed at that time and then they would receive that payment. If they separated before that date, then they did not receive it. They had other conditions to meet as well. They had to pr either provide a proof of vaccination or a declination form. There was the, 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 the complete step process they had to go through and, and then their director recommended them for which tier they would be eligible for based on the conditions that were laid out in the ordinance and, and, and what criteria was met. Follow up, Mr. Chairman. Yes, ma'am. Yes. So, are you saying that if he retired, if he he's retired now, but during the period that they worked, there was a time frame that he should have been employed before being considered for the premium? I I. I don't know the time frame, but what I'm saying is, is that if he separated before the date that was the, the cutoff date that you had to be employed to receive the first payment, remember, if you recall, this was split over two payments. Right. So if you received half a payment on, at that date that you were still employed, you would get it then, but perhaps you separated later, you were not eligible to receive the second half of that payment. So, well, and I too have not been able to respond. So is there any way we can get what those dates were so that I can let him heal, be satisfied? Absolutely. I'll be glad to provide that information Wonderful. for you. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, let me see if who else might be in the queue at this point. Committee member uh, Piagentini. Yes, thank you, Mr. Chair. I just want to clarify something because I had a constituent suburban firefighter reach out to me regarding this. There's some conversation that uh, I've copied the vice chair on, the chairman is aware of, uh, Councilman Winkler as the majority caucus chair, uh, and we're getting some clarity here. But I will say one of the, what I personally, doesn't mean it's right, I'm just saying this is my personal humble opinion, is that one of the major differentiators on the, to, 
not overuse equality or equity, use whichever term you'd like, in how we're distributing these dollars, is that the dollars distributed to Louisville Metro employees were done a year ago. Uh, we are now doing this for suburban fire. So that left an entire year of people retiring and separating who worked valiantly during the period of COVID. And I have story after story of people who had to take personal sacrifice, either direct financial or other personal sacrifice to work during that time, who have separated in that period of time between when Metro got paid and we got paid. We can debate all the live long day about why it was delayed. Part of It's not fully Metro's responsibility as to why it was, but nonetheless, it was government-related or quasi-government agencies that took this extra year to make decisions that differentiated between the day that Metro employees got paid and suburban fire employees got paid. So it is true that everybody's being traded by, by the same rules, the difference being we have, because of that year delay, there may be many, or at least some, suburban firefighters who retired and or separated for other reasons who are not going to get compensated via the premium pay because of that year delay. Uh, and to me, I, I fundamentally believe that's a source of inequality or inequity, whichever word you like. I think it's fundamentally unfair, to put it that way, that we're using a different date that is much different than how when we paid Metro employees to determine that. There may be also technical reasons why we can't go back and do it. So if, I mean, you know, there may be nothing we can do even if we wanted to adopt my idea, which is we go back to that original date. But yes, my understanding is we're using the same rules, albeit for the suburban firefighters and others who are watching this, uh, the, the difference is the date. Metro, Metro folks, we did this a year ago, we are now doing it now, and if you were separated for whatever reason between then and now, uh, at least it seems like you won't be considered as part of the payment. So, uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Uh, I don't see anyone else in the queue. Uh, Dr. Pacino, do you want to speak about the uh, $300,000 appropriation? I would be happy to speak about the $300 or $300,000 appropriation. I'm Susan Buccino. I am the Director of the Homeless Services Division in the Office of Resilience and Community Services. Um, Councilman Piagentini invited me to be here and he asked quite a few questions in an email. No, that's great. I love the questions because I would like to answer them. And so I prepared some slides. Um, Heads up, one of the questions that you asked was about a strategic plan and metrics, and I'd like to share that with you because we have one. All right. Oh, I see. Okay, I see what I did. So, okay, got it. So I have to see it like that so they can see it like this. Perfect. Uh -huh. I can. Thank you. All right, so first I wanna address a few myths. The first myth that we keep hearing is that housing first does not work. Um, I want to start by saying then that despite the myriad of reasons that people become or remain homeless, HUD data show that unaffordable housing is the main cause of homelessness. And so the solution to homelessness 
is housing. And so housing first is an approach to quickly and successfully connect individuals and families experiencing homelessness to permanent housing without preconditions and barriers to entry. This approach removes unnecessary barriers and assumes that supportive services are more effective in addressing the needs when the individual or family is housed and when the daily stress of being homeless is taken out of the equation. And this refers back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for those of you who had to take a random psychology class at some point, and housing is a basic need. And until those basic needs are met, it's really hard to get to the next step. Housing First does not posit that supported services aren't offered. It in fact says that they should be offered. However, it also says that a person has autonomy to decline those services. But again, many times people on the street do refuse services. It's hard to connect, they've been traumatized, they've tried and failed, and despite anybody saying that you can try and fail and fall and get up again, there are so many times really that you can do that and to fit into that box. Um, and so, when people are stabilized, they are more likely to accept services. And this applies to a, a variety of housing models, what it, whether it's scattered site, whether there's um, one building that's dedicated to um, housing and with permanent supportive housing. And so, Councilman Piagentini, you recommended this book. San Francisco, San Francisco, I'm gonna say it. Okay, so I went to the Louisville Public Library and uh, pulled out this book, but I got your email on Tuesday. I did not have time to read the entire 300-page book by today. What I did have time to, as a researcher, is look at the reference list for this book. So what I found is that, very largely, this gentleman cites news articles, YouTube videos, um, there is a page of references. There, there are maybe a handful of studies that were done specifically targeting housing and success of housing um, for people with chronic and persistent mental illness. So not housing first, and largely just um, different housing programs and houses were approached. So, um, I challenge you to take this then with a grain of salt because as a journalist, you can find all sorts of evidence to support the theories without looking at research. So the next myth I would like to address is that people experiencing homelessness choose to live on the streets. No one grows up with the goal to be homeless. That is not something that we want to do, right? So that said, it happens to a lot of people. And there are a lot of people, even those working for Metro government, as Councilman Member George pointed out earlier um, about equity pay, who are on the edge of housing stability because of the pay scale and the fact that our minimum wage right now has not changed despite the cost of living that is inflated and very inflated right now. So before all the inflation, we said that it took about $15 an hour to uh, be able to rent a one-bedroom apartment in Kentucky, um, and housing 
costs have certainly risen. So let's talk about displacement versus chronic homelessness. And displacement really refers to the people who can't meet their utility bills, can't meet that rent, make choices to make sure that their kids stay alive instead of paying that utility and rent and therefore then get evicted. We have a large population that that's occurring to right now. So solving chronic homelessness and the people that have been on the street for a long time is difficult. It has, the longer that someone is on the street, the harder it is to house them. So studies have estimated that about half of the sheltered homeless and 40% of unsheltered homelessness have employment. We are talking about people who are trying their best and not able to make it. Additionally, 64% of the homeless population had a reported disability in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, if you look at SSI, so people with a disability who haven't had their 40 quarters of work over their lifespan make $841 a month. They can get a rental subsidy, but the, um, the rate of apartments is clearly more than that. And so when we're talking about the disability population, we are talking about a population that is doing their best, but doesn't have the income to really survive and thrive. So I've also heard um, that we've thrown a lot of money at homelessness in the last couple years. What we've done is throw a lot of money at housing. And by a lot, I mean, I am really excited that this year the ARP funds went to $40 million of the Affordable Housing Trust Fund, so, so new units coming on board. What we've been talking about, though, in homelessness is those who are at 30% or below the average median income. And in the last several years, we have actually only funded the development of 717 affordable housing units through the Louisville Affordable Housing Trust Fund. And those units from 2020 may not be completed yet because it takes a while to build. Um, we've also allocated $32 million of ARP funding to permanent supportive housing. Uh, many of those are, are new builds and that's great too. So we'll be adding more permanent affordable housing units. Um, I also wanna say that not everybody in that zero to 30% AMI category is already homeless. So those people will also be interested in getting lower rates in their, in their housing if they're homeless, if they're not homeless, if, uh, and increasing their ability to have flexible income. So as much money as we've thrown at it, and it feels like a lot, as Councilman Arthur mentioned, our 31,000 unit shortage for that level of AMI isn't going anywhere. All right, I've also heard a couple times that the storage facility is no longer in operation, and that was confusing because I administer the funds from the homeless initiative, and it continues to fund the storage facility. When the storage facility was initiated in 2019, it was first pulled up at the First Link property um, on Liberty. 
And that was anticipated to be a really great site, a really great use of a space that was dead, uh, and it wasn't. So St. John Center was approached to stand up that operation. They took that on. They found that it wasn't really aligned with their mission and their capability, especially because it wasn't on their property, but thought that Salvation Army, who has a gated property and a lot more parking lot space, would be a better place and a better solution for the service, especially because they do have overnight shelter. And so people could leave their stuff in that overnight shelter area and go back and forth a little bit more easier throughout the community. Um, I will say that as a partner agency, Salvation Army, like so many of our partner agencies, has been challenged to uh, staff and, and they're at low capacity. Um, they're working on that consistently, but um, so their hours of operation last year were a little tighter, but the storage operation itself has never gone away. So this chart really shows you um, how much money has been allocated to homeless services through the homeless initiative in the past um, four years. And also last year, thank you very much for the homeless services division and adding additional funding. We've used the funding that was appropriated to our division budget, partly for division operations, and a lot to continue to fill the gaps in the community and in the system of services. And so almost a million last year and over a million this year, we have also been able to dedicate towards filling those gaps and those needs. Um, I will point out though that almost half a million dollars this year is really actually going to supporting camp clearing events. And I'll talk a little bit more about how that works out. Director Laird's been here on the, for all of this activity, and I have peripherally, did you want to add anything? Actually, no. Uh, I did want to add that the Salvation Army uh, hours are on Wednesday, Monday, well, on Monday through Friday, they're open from 9 to 12. And then um, Housing Safety Model 2, they're open from Wednesday through Friday, 4 to 6. So those are their hours of operation for the storage. So it is open and it's running. All right, so I want to talk a little bit about this gentleman, Carter, as a case study first. Carter presents with both psychiatric and physical illnesses. He lives on the streets and has made his way through lots of services. His story exemplifies the barriers we face in multiple systems. Homeless Services Division was first introduced to Carter when we were called to remove a man from the truck stop near a hospital. He was covered in his own feces and was unable to walk. EMS wouldn't pick him up because of the proximity to the hospital. The hospital took some coaxing to bring a stretcher out to the street and bring Carter inside to clean up. Once they did, they sent him on his way immediately. An outreach team picked him up to stay overnight in a hotel and described his psychosis when they retrieved him from the emergency room. It was still very evident. 
By the next morning in the hotel, Carter had removed his colostomy bag without replacement supplies. Clearly, he was not capable of staying in an emergency shelter, nor are shelters equipped and staffed for that level of care. HSD helped to take out a mental inquest warrant for Carter, but then outreach waited more than 24 hours for LMPD to serve the MIW and for EMS to transport him to the hospital for emergency psychiatric services. Even though an MIW is for a psych assessment, when someone has physical needs, the hospital addresses those first and then discharges that person without necessarily sending them back for psychiatric evaluation. And so Carter was again right back on the street. I've talked to both hospital systems about Carter and they are both very familiar with Carter. One pulled his case file to report that at one time, the hospital social worker had called 50 nursing facilities before finding one in Indiana that would accept him as a resident. But no one had checked with Carter to learn that one of his paranoias was about crossing water, and so he quickly refused to move to Indiana. HSD, I checked Carter's record in the Homeless Services database, and I learned that he first encountered service in February of 2019 and had stayed in multiple shelters in the past. His record reflected that he was not assessed for housing by anyone in the system until September 2022. We failed Carter. We are failing many people like him. So hearing his story helps when I present this slide now. This is our system of services with arrows depicting the various paths that someone might encounter providers. Sometimes there are direct paths. More often though, someone bounces around the system, unable to find all the supports and resources they need. While all the services are valuable and have essential functions, the goal is to see the provider circled in red for a housing assessment called the common assessment. The common assessment is the only way to be included in the homeless services fast track toward a housing voucher, because I think many of you might be familiar with the fact that a LMHA section eight voucher can take three to four years before you can get. So, Although Louisville offers many valuable services that are meeting the needs at many points within the continuum of care and among other agencies, few gaps have become hurdles in meeting the goals of getting someone into permanent housing. The most obvious being the lack of housing inventory. But also, Louisville needs some, the capacity and coordination to provide the supports to move someone quickly into housing when someone needs to take on this complicated system the length of time it takes to find the appropriate supports to identify a permanent housing option results in prolonged homelessness. Moreover, instead of using opportunities to extend assistance and foster trust, the onus of the request for help is on the client. So instead of the system of supports providing a coordinated effort to navigate resources and remove barriers and identify solutions, the individual experiencing the trauma of homelessness may repeatedly slip through the cracks as multiple opportunities for developing relationships and supports are missed. In the past year, HSD was able to apply um, an approach to 
make sure that people were stabilized as we cleared camps. And so this is another little case study, but really this was a harm reduction strategy and tested the system with high levels of coordination and accountability by contracting with outreach providers to move an encampment resident to a hotel for nine days just prior to the camp clearing. During the nine days, HSD coordinated with providers to work out of the hotel to provide the services. Although the hotel was stay was short-term, it provided stability so that people felt safe with a locked door and were able to shower, sleep in a bed, and no meals would be available. Once their basic needs were addressed and they were out of crisis, they were more likely to accept the services offered. These pictures are from the encampment under I-64 along the riverfront between 10th and 15th streets, um, and commonly known as Mercer in the community. This encampment was generally out of sight and therefore out of mind and became one of Louisville's oldest hiding spots for individuals experiencing homelessness. And as you know, this area is now in preparation for the next phase of the waterfront park expansion. Preparation for the clearing of this camp took months of conversation and strategizing. We worked really hard with waterfront parks to do that. And during the 21-day notice period, the HSD team collaborated with partners to complete needs assessments on 76 individuals and helped two folks use the vouchers that they had already been granted to move into housing. When it was time to vacate the premises for clearing, only 34 individuals moved into a hotel. The rest decided to stay out or move along. During the nine days in hotel, 13 individuals were connected with housing referrals and then able to stay in the hotel while working with a housing navigation team to find them an apartment. But at the end of the week, 21 individuals were back on the streets. The encampment clearing was one of nine camps that HSD has approached with this methodology in 2022. This picture is of camp data from the reports from 311 for fiscal year 22. Despite efforts, unsheltered homelessness continues to grow throughout Jefferson County and will continue to grow. Our projection that Louisville's homeless census will grow by 2,000 people between fiscal year 21 and fiscal year 23 is based on a recent study by the U.S. Government Accountability Office that a $100 increase in median rent res results in a 9% increase in homelessness. Louisville's median monthly rent has increased just under $150 since the most recent pit count in February 2022, but nearly $400 since 2019. And there are just simply more people experiencing homelessness than shelters can accommodate. So we're busy doing a lot of things to address encampments, but not achieving much. More than 1.3 million will go toward camp clearing efforts in 2022. There is also a number of costs to the city that are not in this total, such as those assumed by LMDC, the Department of Corrections, and the impact of street homelessness on businesses. Gabriccino, this is a very good presentation. Let mm -hmm. me say, Councilman Piagentini needs to leave in a minute, and he has a question or a comment he'd like to make. All right. No, I would like certainly to come back to this presentation. Okay, I can do that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Apologize for the time crunch. That's all right. So uh, 
I had a bunch of things here. I'm going to summarize a little bit. First of all, I'm not sure, and maybe it's coming later in the presentation, but I want to read, because not I didn't copy everybody on the committee, uh, it, what I said in my first email, because mm -hmm. we agree on many things. We probably still disagree on one or two things, but this is what I asked for. I said, quote, I think the best way to think about this is first, let's lay a line in the sand and agree on the data points we are trying to solve for. This could be the spot homelessness count, the total average homeless count, or for some variety or group of metrics that tell us if we are doing better or worse. It would be better if we agree on those metrics and back them up a few years to see how the last five or 10 years have performed and then how we're moving forward, right? So, because the fundamental question is, is it getting better or worse? So let me just ask that quick question. Is it getting better or worse? Worse. Okay. So we have the highest wage growth in the history of America. We have, or at least modern economic data, we have the lowest unemployment. Uh, we have twice as many job openings as we do job seekers. Um, we're spending more on affordable housing than we've ever spent. I realize there's many, many factors. This is, this is why I said it's got probably a multitude of factors. But when we're spending record amounts of money on the issue, and the other economic factors that typically increase homelessness, such as unemployment uh, or a lack of wage growth, because you mentioned the, the, the minimum wage, UPS right now starts people at $19 an hour and doesn't even do a background check. I know because I have a family member who has a criminal record, uh, is, was recently homeless and got a job with them in hours and started getting paid 19 bucks an hour. Uh, and they are one of many major national employers that are paying in the 19 to $20 range an hour and not even doing background checks for new employees. They just want you to show up and don't steal from them. So the, um, I, I do want to come to a question because I didn't say, again, I'm not going to read my whole email. I forwarded it to a few other colleagues who are here. I didn't say that houselessness, home, that, uh, sorry, what's housing first. I didn't say that housing first is always wrong. I just said that in some circumstances, particularly when we're talking about mental health and addiction, and to be clear, SAMHSA, and I'm pulling this data right off, SAMHSA.gov, and mm -hmm. you know, a bunch long list of stuff, uh, quote, over eight, uh, so according to analysis uh, from the, the big acronym of the study, over 60% of people who are chronically homelessness have experienced lifetime mental health problems over 80% have experienced lifetime alcohol and or drug problems. Again, I, I will use the anecdotal family circumstance to prove my point, but I think Carter, because you brought him up as a case study, is another perfect point. Stick him in a house first, mm -hmm. or any, what he needs is inpatient psychiatric care first. And then when he's mentally stable, right, I'm sure he needs to stable housing. There's no question about that. You can even call it housing and mental health simultaneous, right, or something right. like that. Mm -hmm. And I said in my email, I said the state has a map, the state's the biggest funder of, state through federal government, through Medicaid, biggest funder of mental health services. Again, we're spending record amounts of money in mental health ever in the history of America, uh, frankly. Don't have enough mental health providers, don't have enough inpatient beds. <clears throat> All issues that, just as Councilman Arthur said, we need the state to help us solve. Again, my point was, um, I am not against, I've voted for mm -hmm. almost all these funding sources to increase housing. Uh, and 
I would like to explore with OMB why the first, you know, if there's extra dollars, why the first couple dollars, maybe the first 700,000 goes to get the emergency shelter to a million, and then we'll deal with reporting, right? Because, you know, one may be more important than the other in my eyes. But so, again, I'm coming back to if it's getting, if, if I see macroeconomic data like locally we're spending more than ever, the state's spending more than ever on mental health. Um, the uh, other macroeconomic data, including local unemployment, wage growth, and all this is, is historically never been better. Um, and the situation's getting worse. I'm just questioning whether or not we're going about this the wrong way and whether or not we need to deploy things in a different order or in a different manner mm -hmm. to solve the problem. Absolutely, we do. Um, and. Fortunately, uh, at the state level, they have now um, had a resolution to move forward with creating a Medicaid waiver to address chronic and persistent mental illness and provide more community-based services with that waiver. Um, unfortunately, it's not gonna happen right now. I mean, they'll work on it, it takes a minute. Uh, Medicaid's a state and federal partnership and so the feds will still have to approve that. Um, and I agree, I, Carter needed to be stabilized first. Right. But permanent housing looks lots of different ways. It doesn't have to be his own house. It just needs to be that stability factor, right? Addressing that on the street and having to find him to make sure he takes medication every day isn't gonna happen. Agreed, right. Mm -hmm. And again, that's why I call it sort of simultaneous, right? right. And, and you can Absolutely. call inpatient psychiatric care housing because I would agree it is. If he's sleeping there, that's where he's housed, right? And th there's no question that, again, there's, it, Councilman Arthur talks about this, and he's right, there's multiple levels of housing affordability, which is a whole nother, so we're talking about homelessness right now. Mm -hmm. Then there's housing affordability, which is sort of the overlay. You have homeless being the worst case scenario, then you have what I'll call couch surfing or you know, home sharing, right? It's not your home, you have no, you're not on the lease. Uh, again, I know people who have done this in my own family. Uh, been in the circumstances where that's how they had to live for a period of time. Next is uh, your housing burdened, as, as I think Councilman Northward talked about it, you're spending too much of your disposable income. I, again, the question, uh, I have some issues with the total number uh, in the housing study in that I don't think we're talking about every individual being in a house they can afford. We're talking about family units, mm -hmm. households being in. The report, and I've sent it to a couple economists at UofL, they all say the same thing. There's a lot of confusion between individuals and households in the study, right? Mm -hmm. And if you conflate the two things, you have a big data problem because we're not saying that every individual should be in their own one bedroom or two bedroom place. Mm -hmm. We're saying that households, defined in the most open way you can define that, right? Um, that multiple people live in a, you know, two or three people live in a one or two bedroom apartment, right? Which is not an uncommon thing, right? Uh, cohabitating uh, adults, right, or spouses live in a one bedroom apartment. It's two people in a one bedroom, or a studio for that matter, right? So there's layers in, in, in complexity to this. Again, what I was saying is I appreciate the case studies, I appreciate your advocacy, as I said in the bottom of my email. I, to quote, I, I will want to express my sincere appreciation of your help with this. I have the highest level of admiration for those doing the hard work, and I hope that these thoughts express a manner of how we can all win. So you have the resources you need, the homeless to see a pathway off the street, and the city sees a truly compassionate place for all to live and work. 
because it's not compassionate. You, you mentioned people refusing services on the street. It's not compassionate to accept that. I don't, New York City is, is implementing, and I think they're on the cutting edge of this, implementing required mental health treatment for those with chronic mental health issues if they are homeless. I am about as freedom loving as the next person is, but if you are literally out of your mind, you don't have the capacity to make that choice. When you are stable, you have the capacity then to make the choice about where and how you want to live. But living on the street, um, when you said people don't choose it, you're right, nobody grows up, nobody said people grow up doing it. But uh, having myself, I mean, I'm not sans having worked in homeless communities and worked to support the homeless. Uh, I have had homeless people deny services mm -hmm. that were exactly what they needed to get off the streets. Mm -hmm. And so it, I'm not saying that, uh, that uh, they were doing it rationally, because I believe wholeheartedly they were not. But it is not compassionate enough to accept that as an answer, right? Mm -hmm. So. Uh, I'm just going to wrap this up because I have to go. I want you to get back to your presentation, and, and I apologize for my time. It's my time limit. I have to go get my daughter from volleyball practice. But the, uh, I, what I want to make sure we continue to do, the case studies are great. All that is wonderful. But in the future, and I think if they're doing budget hearings, and when we review right, the department's thing on a quarterly or semi-annual basis, there should be, it, it shouldn't be more than a couple slides, really. right? Here is the numbers that we're trying to affect. Mm -hmm. Here's the strategy, and we're getting worse, better or worse. You're saying we're getting worse. Okay, here are the numbers that show we're getting worse. Here's the things we're recommending to adjust to make the numbers better. And I think we need a little more simplicity around that so that we can help you both locally and, you know, look, the session's about coming to Frankfurt. I'm, I'm going to be there advocating for Louisville in all kinds of ways, and I would be glad to advocate for more mental health services as an example. Uh, so, so I think we just need to tighten that up a little bit, and I think you know we can all be on the same page on it. Yes, I agree with all of that, okay. um, and I appreciate your willingness to invest the time to even email me all those thoughts. And I do think that we are on the same page for a lot of things. Um, I wanted to show you that our um, RCS has been working really hard on some dashboards so that you can see data points. Um, the homeless services dashboard is not quite ready for publication, so this is just a screenshot of one of the points that we have up there. This slide looks at the housing referral wait list, so I mentioned uh, the common assessment earlier, and um, so this is the individuals who have had the common assessment. And this is just calendar year 2022, as we get data every month and, and have worked to put this together. Um, and align that common assessment with, with the Homeless Management Information System, HMIS system, data. So the gold is the number of people who are coming into the system, newly coming into the system that have had this um, and added to the waiting list each month. The blue is how many are exiting the system every month, um, whether they've gone inactive and that's the dark blue, is the inactive. Inactive means that they have not been in HMIS and seen a homeless service provider in 90 days. So we can presume that they are nothing, right? Like, it's a transient population we just don't know, and that happens quite often, as you can see. But um, the lighter blue is the number of people housed. You might see the very, very thin line in June of red that's people who have deceased. Um, 
but thank you. This is this is something. So currently, our housing waiting list is at seventeen hundred people. Okay. Uh, yeah. Thank you. And again, that could be one of the metrics, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the, the up or down on that is is the uh, determination so of success or failure, right? Yeah. So, so again, we're getting there, be there. More, because I think we, we do need to add the housing, the spot homelessness, right? Which I know is only done periodically. I mean, we that. Mm -hmm plus the housing waitlessness, the wait list, plus maybe a few other things. Um, thank you. Uh, is this being emailed? Because I don't think it's on the, I don't think it's here. Are it you, hasn't been, but I can that would share be it. Um, thank you. Yeah. Yes, I will. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. And let me, let me say, um, Dr. Buccino, we will, uh, when you email it, we will also have this uh, attached to the uh, agenda item for this so that it will be available to the public as well. Okay. I appreciate that. Did you have more slides? There are three other people in the queue. I do have more slides, but I can, you know, tell you, I can move through it. I can show you our strategic plan. Um, I can tell you other metrics we want to look at. I can tell you that our goal is that no one sleeps on the street. Um, we know that everybody's goal is, should be at least, whether you care about, um, the priorities of housing first or eviction protection and no wrong door and, and to take care of residents in most need who shouldn't sleep on the street or your priority is really about keeping our community safe and clean and attracting businesses and a thriving economy and tourism, um, no one should be sleeping on the street. And so I think as a community then we can all agree that that is our ultimate goal, that no one sleeps on the street. Um, I can tell you that none of the people who are currently on the street are going to pull money out of their pocket and magically just put themselves back into housing. And so it really is going to take the dedication both of human capital and financial capital to address the situation. Um, some of the metrics that we've been able to really look at are because of the Homeless Services Division capacity that was added in the last year and a half. Um, and so, it has taken this this last year and a half to be established and uh, develop this strategic goal and really familiarize ourselves with the system and build our own capacity. And we have an amazing team that's doing some great work. Um, I think that it's something that we can all do better at and there are lots of reasons why the system doesn't work well and why we see an increase rather than a decrease. And we're working on trying to figure out how to make those tighter and function better so that we're more effective and more efficient. Councilman Hollander and the council members. Oh, I'm sorry, this is Tamika Laird, the Director for Office of Resilience and Community Services. Um, I know that we're running out of time and I want to be respectful of council members' time. So we do know that the presentation was um, a little bit lengthy, but we wanted to ensure that we would be able to answer all your questions. Because throughout this fiscal year, there's been a lot of questions around homelessness and uh, what the city's doing versus what our community's doing, our homeless providers, and et cetera. So we just wanted to give you all that information. So um, you can let us know exactly. Okay, I, let, me, let me go to the queue now and, and okay. you may need to refer to something. In mm -hmm. slide, there's some questions. So Councilwoman McCraney has a question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. 
I, I had three questions. One has already been answered that we'll get the presentation, so thank you for that. Uh, then I wanted to know, there was always a yearly assessment so we can capture the number of people that are still on the street. Is that taking place? So the annual year? assessment, are you referring to the point in time count that happens in January that has street oh, is, count? is it in January? It is consistently in January, mandated by HUD, typically the last week of January. And so it will be coming up soon. Okay. Um, We've made adjustments in the last couple of years to accommodate COVID, so. Yeah, and I would like to have information on that and the dates so that we can participate. Absolutely. Okay. We would love and, to have you. Okay, and on the housing vouchers, I have three sub-questions, three questions. One is, do we know the number of uh, distributed, that were distributed this year? Do we know the number that's unused? And then do we know the number that are uh, that is still available that did not get distributed? I do not have all the LMHA data, but I can certainly get that for you. I know that um, they do publicize that on their website in their annual report. Um, what they have shared with us is that there are 800 vouchers that have been allotted to special programs. Um, and community partners all over the city. And right now, about 50% of those have been actually processed and moving. Um, our division is working to figure out the eligibility criteria and the application process for the various programs. Um, LMAJ is under capacity right now, and, and so it's taking them a minute to process vouchers as well. And so, um, that is one of the bottlenecks that we're seeing is that processing itself can take a couple months. So we know that processing is a problem. We do. But, but we have housing to accommodate, but the processing is a problem. It's both. That's a problem. And a lot of the housing that we do have is really subpar. Well, it, but it's it, better than on the street. And, and so if that's an issue, we need to look at that as well, right? Correct. Okay. So there's something to think about, and uh, I appreciate your answers, straightforward. And uh, we have a lot of work to do. We do. And, and we know data. You communicate them well. Thank you. And we just need to buckle down and, and figure it out a little bit uh, more strategically, I think. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, I would also point out that there is a uh, I think it's quarterly at this point, uh, the, uh, a task force meeting. I believe it's quarterly at this point. I've been it attending is. those. Those are public meetings. Uh, you can watch them on, uh, on your website and on Facebook uh, Live. And, and I learned something about this issue every time I attend one. Councilwoman Fowler. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, Dr. Pacino, I, I wondered if you could give us an update on the um, the services van that we um, funded um, in the last uh, budget se season. Yes, Is that up and running? I don't believe so. I know they had posted the jobs and were in the hiring process and they had um, acquired a van. As I think I mentioned to you in an email, they didn't need to right. purchase a van, but they did have to send that for um, just refurbishing it so that it kind of set up that office space that you were hoping for. Um, I think they are targeting uh, January 1st, 
and I can double check that and confirm that for you. Okay. Um, so, and, and I think the problem is the, the um, amount of money that is allocated towards, I mean, we allocated more towards the personnel, but their pay rate um, is, is just not up there. Um, attractive, I think, to a lot of people. I think it would have to be somebody who was passionate about um, that type of work. So were the two ladies that we gave you all information about, were they even um, approached or given an application? Do you know? I have passed that information along to Tamara at Volunteers of America, who was doing the hiring, and I don't know who she's hired or who applied. Um, we can find out that information though and forward that to you. Okay, and where they are. I, I'd appreciate and, that. And I think, you know, when I last checked with them then they were in the hiring process, she also mentioned it does take several weeks to complete training right. and, and get them onboarded as well. Right, okay, well, just uh, when you do get some valuable information, if you could pass that along, I'd appreciate it. Thank will you. Do. Just for the public, I, I believe that that appropriation was to fund a van and services that were sort of directed outside the Waterson Expressway, um, where we have a growing population and not as many services. Uh, I think that's correct, if I remember correctly. Councilman, yes, that's right. Councilman Winkler. Uh, thank you, Chair Hollander. And uh, Dr. Junior, thanks for the great presentation. Um, I had sort of a question going back to the example you gave the, uh, about Carter and, and, you know, really want to call out if, if I understand the issue there correctly, um, even if you had sort of shelter space available or money for a hotel, it sounds like that's really not sort of the fundamental issue, right? The fundamental issue is more of the supportive housing gap, right? That, that if I understood sort of the, the details, you know, of, of the mental health condition that he's dealing with that, you know, even just having a room available probably is insufficient. Correct. Is, is, Air. That is um, correct. So tell me, I know that in the one of the ARP allocations, part of what we funded is a transitional housing, right? Supportive housing model. Um, we, and I know it's hard to. The supportive, sort of hard, the 32 million went to permanent supportive housing. Yes. yes. Which would solve, I shouldn't say solve, it would go towards addressing this specific type of need, correct? No, not correct. So okay, permanent. So tell me why Permanent supportive housing, um, the service that is offered is case management. And so St. John Center is building a single site permanent supportive housing development for 80 units so that people will be on site. It is not a 24-7 or assisted living. It's, it'll have 24-7 security and access for crises, but it'll still be more about case management service providers being on site during the week or during their business hours. Um, Wellsprings also working on permanent supportive housing. They use a little bit different model where they have uh, triplexes or fourplexes um, throughout the community that are scattered site. And again, as an organization that serves explicitly people with chronic and persistent mental illness, they, um, they offer case management in those cases they also do have um, two ACT teams, the Assertive Community Treatment Teams, 
And so those teams are able to um, provide more wraparound services because they are multidisciplinary teams. They actually have uh, psychiatric time reserved for them, so they're able to get someone to a psychiatrist quickly. But even then, the level of support doesn't necessarily include daily medication management or meal preparation or laundry services and some of those and budgeting and, and payee services. So some of those things that people may need more extensive help with are not available even in a permanent supportive housing model. I'll ask sort of a broad question. You can answer it however you choose, mm -hmm. right? Number one, do you have a sense for um, sort of what, and you can say answer in percentage or sort of rough terms, like the scope of that problem in terms of our chronic on-street homeless, okay? Um, who, if anyone, is working on providing that type of support, okay? And who, if anyone, is responsible for paying for that type of support, right? So is this a failure by the federal government? Is it a failure by state government? Is it a failure by us? Is nobody responsible for it, right? Can you sort of just in you know just a few words kind of paint that picture? Yeah, I think um, if I'm correct, about 30% of our housing, our homeless population right now um, has a reported mental illness, um, and so if we used our pit count of um, just over a thousand people, there are about 300 people on this. Well, using shelter and on the streets. That's, that's combined um, in the current population, although that count was from last February, so I know that things have changed since then. The landscape's very different. Um, so as I mentioned, Medicaid, which is the state-federal partnership, will be creating a waiver. Um, the waiver program, if you're not familiar with that, um, Kentucky has a couple of them. Uh, the Supports for Community Living Waiver, the Michelle P. Waiver, there's an Acquired Brain Injury Waiver. Those are designed for community-based services and community-based living to support people to stay in the community in their least restrictive environment. And so the waiver part is that they are applied to special populations or test special models of care that are not aligned with what's typical eligibility for Medicaid or typical services that are approved. And so as Kentucky designs their Medicaid waiver for mental illness, we have the opportunity to say what is needed and how it is provided. Um, so I'm hopeful that some of those services will be covered by Medicaid in the future. Supports for Community Living and the Acquired Brain Injury Waiver both have intense residential supports. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm gonna say, as somebody who worked on the Brain Injury Waiver and has worked with people with chronic and persistent mental illness, um, who are homeless or at risk of homelessness as an occupational therapy, I could provide occupational therapy for a client for up to 13 hours a week on the brain injury waiver. And that's just not something that any other medical insurance pays for. And so that really intense service provision is, is there and available if the waiver establishes it that way. And I think that that's the goal. I think that's what the advocates were really asking for, and I think that the resolution asks that that is put in place. Um, I think that all of this is 
a layered response as far as whose responsibility. It needs to be that federal push, it needs to be that state allocation, um, and it needs to be us being conscious about what's happening and how we coordinate and communicate um, and supplement anything that where there's still remaining gaps. Um, does that answer your question? It, it, so yeah, it does. And let me just ask, so let's say it's 300 to 400, right? If, if there's an increase, maybe it's mm -hmm. more. Um, it, even if you had all of the funding pieces figured out, what's our capacity? It, like, is there also a capacity gap in the city in terms of providers? Absolutely. The providers are tapped out. They are, if they've all had staffing struggles, um, and they are all, as Councilwoman George alluded to earlier, social work is not well paid. And so um, some organizations are able to pay a little bit better than others, um, but attracting workers at that pay scale for really hard work that's exhausting is difficult. And so they are seeing a capacity issue um, and they are exhausted. So that is something that we've we've asked for. Um, as far as and and you know, it, secondary trauma. Secondary yeah. trauma. Yeah. So providing those services causes secondary trauma, right? You're witnessing other people's trauma all day. Um, so burnout rates are high. Um, you know what we've asked for in funding has consistently been to distribute to our community partners. This isn't something that. HSD is building anything else right now or providing the direct services, we are asking that we can distribute more funding to our community partners. So one of the things that's on this side that I have up um, that I would love to see is another ACT team, that assertive community treatment team. One team provides services, those intense wraparound services to up to 50 people. And so that's another 50 people that somebody would be working with to move them off the street and into housing and make sure that they're stabilized and seeing medical providers and taking their medication and getting the help that they need. Um, and then we have other ways that, that service providers are trying to build capacity, but you know, as they grow, they also need to be able to have the infrastructure in place. And a lot of small grassroots organizations um, are, it, that takes some time. So uh, they're, they're doing it. We've got a couple small grassroots organizations in the last year, both um, the Hope Bus that's running the Hope Village and Feed Louisville that's been working with us um, to provide the hotel services for camp clearings. They're both now completely different than they were a year ago because we were able to partner with them and help them to build the capacity and have the funding to do more, to to increase their services. They were doing the work, we're funding the people doing the work. Thank you, and I just have one last thing to say, which isn't a question, but a comment about, you know, sort of maybe it wasn't explicitly stated, but was somewhat implied, I think, earlier, uh, which is sort of the idea that, you know, people living on the street maybe don't want to work. And, and you know, what I'd reference is, is two things. Um, I'm certain that if you went out and looked at the thousand people that are on the street, you might come across somebody that doesn't want to work. I get, I mean, in any population that's going to happen, but you know, we also fund the another way program with Goodwill where they go and pick up pain handlers. And one of the things that they have done is ask them, you know, why are you out here? Right. Or, or why did you accept the ride? 
And what we find overwhelmingly is that they are willing to go and work, right? That the van is consistently oversubscribed. Um, and the feedback that we get from them is, you know, the reason I, I jumped on the van is because I would rather do something of service, right? But that there are barriers in the way, either, you know, a substance abuse issue, a mental health issue, you know, don't have an ID. Um, and as I'm sure, you know, Councilman Arthur would agree with me and as he and I were texting back and forth, um, you know, it's hard to go have sustainable employment if you don't have, first have a place where you're living, right? And sort of having that baseline uh, to then go and get a job. I mean, it, it, you know, to an extent, it's sort of a chicken and egg problem, right? I got to have the job to be able to afford the place to live. Uh, but if I, you know, don't have a consistent place to lay my head, also hard to get up in the morning, go show up on work on time um, and, and hold down a consistent place of employment. So, you know, I, I would just be careful of, of and I'm not saying you, obviously, of, of anyone sort of generalizing and saying, well, you know, these are people that, that don't want to work. Right. And, and, you know, they may not be able to work. Right. Or at least not may not be able to work in their current um, state or uh, living condition. Thank you. Thank you. I, I don't see anyone else in the queue at this point. Uh, I'll just make a couple of comments. Um, I, I think the presentation is very informative. I do think we need to continue to talk about uh, individual cases and and the story of that individual case. I think it is very easy uh, for council members and for members of the community to generalize about uh, the character or the circumstances of the people they see on the street. And the fact is they're not all the same. And the fact is there are new, new people. So when we talk about how it's getting worse, you know, we can be getting a lot of people off the street, but as new people come in, it can get worse. Um, the other thing I would, uh, you know, I would just say is that uh, I'd certainly appreciate all of your work and everybody in at RCS. But I think it's also just always important when we talk about this to to recognize all of the people who are volunteers in all of these organizations that we rely on to keep people fed and try to keep people warm uh, throughout the year. They are doing yeoman's work uh, with relatively small resources uh, and we would have a lot bigger crisis on our hands than we currently do if they weren't out there doing that. Um, is there anything you'd like to say? So to wrap up and then we're, we need to vote on this ordinance to get the I, money to. So I think the money on the table is the 300,000 um, and I am absolutely grateful for that and I think that we can get people inside for winter um i guess my original ask was for a lot more than that and that didn't make it to the budget um my uh councilman arthur's original amendment asked for a 1.2 million and that didn't make it through um so i've scaled back what we can do considerably with three hundred thousand dollars um what I guess I would like to know from you is, are we looking for winter shelter to save lives, or are we looking for an end result where I'm putting families into housing from the hotel space? Because that changes how we spend that $300,000 during winter. 
And one of the things that has been brought well, up is, is to, to what end, right? So if I, I can put a lot more families in a hotel for 60 days while it's cold outside and then kick them out after 60 days than I can to actually move them through the system and make sure that they can get back into housing, which has been a really successful program as we've used COVID funds to do that where they've had that two months of stability and then can have the financial supports to pay arrears and deposit and get started on those first couple months back on their feet. Councilman Arthur, you may want to speak to this as well. Uh, we have characterized this as the, as the plan that you presented. And we realize that you can't do as much as you were going to do with $1.2 million, but it's, it's to, to do as much as you can on the plan that you presented uh, with $300,000. I actually asked- Councilman Arthur, you may want to speak. Thank you so much. I'd, I'd like to hear from other committee members if they have an opinion. If they don't, then I'll give mine. Uh, but weeks ago, I did try to move for 1.2 million. That failed, so here we are. Chair Hollander, Councilman Triplett here. I'm not in the queue, forgive me. Uh, but just quickly, I mean, we, we discussed this at length two weeks ago. This, and we understand this is not a cure-all, end-all, like we would want it to be, not an ideal situation. And, and much, much more is needed uh, with resources, personnel, so forth. Uh, this, was, this was money that was available that we wanted to put in this direction for this, for this winter help to be used in whatever way, in, in an emergency situation. So yeah, we, we this body understands perfectly that we would, if there was more, we would appropriate more. But we, we fully understand that this was just money that became available. And uh, uh, so, so we, want, we, we do know that it's, it's for emergency. And that money, and it's your call. You, you guys that manage the program are, are, are best to manage this in whatever ways uh, most efficient as possible. Thank you. Thank you, Councilman, well said. Um, Councilman Arthur, I don't see anyone else in the queue if you wanna speak. We'll definitely wanna make sure that we put people in emergency shelter to save lives, and then when they get out, fingers crossed that they fall somewhere better than they were before they went into that shelter. Okay. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Councilman Arthur. And thank you, Councilman Hollander, for giving us this time to talk. Um, Right. Please your, send, please send me. Uh, thank you. Please send the uh, send send the uh, presentation, the full presentation, which I know is longer than we've presented here, to me. I will make sure it gets circulated uh, to all council members. We'll also get it loaded on the uh, on the uh, agenda so that the public can see the whole presentation. And I would just encourage you. I, you know, I won't be here, but uh, you know, I hope that the council continues to have these discussions about needs and how we're doing and. And, uh, and why people may be seeing more uh, folks who are houseless on our streets, despite what we're spending. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't think it always has to be a budget. So we have other committees of the council that I hope hear these kind of discussions. I think it's extremely important. So this is, uh, I don't see one, anyone else in the queue, clerk, unless I've missed somebody. Uh, this is an ordinance as amended to provide this $300,000 and also to transfer the money uh, for premium pay. Uh, this calls for a roll call vote. Uh, uh, Madam Clerk, if you'd open the voting and call the roll. Committee member Chambers Armstrong, Chair Hollander. 
Yes. Committee member Fowler. Yes. Committee member Triplett. Yes. Committee member Winkler. Yes. Committee member Piagettini. Mr. Chair, you have nine yes votes. This will be on old business at our uh, meeting on de uh, December 15th because of the amendment. And that concludes our business for tonight. I Mr. Chair, if I may. Uh, yes, sir. Before we adjourn, Councilman Kramer. Thank yes, you, sir. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, I wanted to point out to my colleagues and any of the viewing public, um, Councilman Hollander is, is not joining us uh, live today. He's home for reasons of his, I don't wanna share public health or private health issues, but uh, I did wanna make sure that this committee especially recognizes that this was the councilman's final committee meeting uh, as chair and actually final committee meeting. So um, I, I have had the distinct pleasure of working with Councilman Hollander for the last several years um, as vice chair of the budget committee. And while we have butted heads on more than one occasion, um, I will say that I have been very much impressed uh, with Councilman Hollander's insistence on making sure that it's a fair process, it's an open process, that folks who need to be heard are heard. Um, I, I, I can't say how much I appreciate that. Uh, tons of respect for, for the work that he's done and more importantly, um, just tons of respect for, for Bill Hollander as a person. And so I wanna say thank you very much uh, for, your, for your time and your commitment to this committee. Thank you very much. Mr. Thank Chairman. You, Vice Chair Kramer and all the members of the committee. I've enjoyed it very much. Uh, we've done this for five years together um, and uh, I'll be watching uh, maybe a little bit more relaxed next year. Thank you all very much. And, Mr. Uh, Chairman, Mr. Chairman. Yes, sir. It's Rod, Councilman Engel here. I, I, I want to, uh, to weigh in on this too. Since uh, in one week, I think there's probably gonna be a lot of people weighing in on comments. So I'm gonna take the opportunity during the budget committee to say thank you as well from a very quality budget committee chairman perspective. Uh, I've watched a lot of budget committee chairs uh, over the years on my 20 years here. And uh, I, I really greatly appreciate your professionalism. And you also, sir, jumped on the planning and zoning committee, which I've been a part of for a lot of years. And the impressive part of Councilman Hollander is the amount of data that he reads, the amount of background work he comes fully prepared to every committee meeting that I see him at. And then the planning and zoning and budget are, are sort of, those are pretty big, lots of information flow. And so I'm just, just incredibly impressed with your, uh, your, 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 your professionalism, your, uh, uh, just your, all of your work that you come prepared for this government to, to give us uh, the, such incredible insights. So Chairman, uh, Mr. Chairman and Councilman, Job well done, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I appreciate it, and uh, I've enjoyed working with you. Without objection, we're adjourned. For continued healing, for reconciliation,